All right, good morning, everyone. How are we all doing? I want to wish all you dads a happy Father's Day. I pray that it's a blessed day for you and what a blessing it is to be a father. And uh, thanking God for my wife and my two kids who made me a father today. So uh, just thanks to all you dads and uh, all you do and a real blessing uh, to be a father. Well, today we're going to be continuing in our study uh, in the book of Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 8, as uh, Tom read for us, verses 26 uh, through 40, in a message that I'm calling today, uh, How to Seek After God, which we will learn uh, from the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, so let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Uh, Lord God, we do thank you uh, for another Sunday, another Sunday in the house of the Lord. It's a blessed place to be, Lord, and uh, as we preach and proclaim your word and sing your word, uh, we just uh, keep you in mind, Lord. We're ever mindful of you, so thankful for the gift of your Son, uh, who gives us eternal life, Lord. And, and now as we expound the scriptures, I just pray that your word would would come and that your Holy Spirit would teach it to us and open our hearts to receive it, Lord, and uh, teach us what you would have us to learn this morning, Lord. We're so thankful for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, when Molly and I and the kids were in Florida a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had a really nice time on the beach, which we don't get to see very much here in Texas. Not a lot of beaches here in Texas. So we went to Florida and we saw a beach. And uh, after a storm, we went down and we, we checked out the sunset on the beach. And God was really uh, showing off that night. Uh, to the west was this gorgeous sunset. And then behind us to the east following the storm was this incredible rainbow that stretched from one end of the horizon to the other. It was just a beautiful sight, and, and a rainbow is, is really just white light being refracted through the raindrops that were still in the air, and it, it separates the white light into the uh, invisible colors of the spectrum uh, that we can then see. And I was, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking that sometimes we are like white light, right? We, we can see ourselves as a whole, but we can't necessarily see everything that there is to know about ourselves. We don't know ourselves uh, as well as we would like to. Uh, and we certainly don't know each other as well as, as we would like to. But when we think about God, uh, he sees us as he sees, uh, as, as we would see light through a prism, separated, seeing every bit of us. Uh, that's the way God sees us, even though we can't see ourselves uh, that way. And, and so I was thinking about that uh, in our passage last week and this week, how God gave Philip certain gifts, and he was able to see every part of Philip, and, and he was able to give Philip the gifts and, and then uh, put him in positions to use these gifts and, and, and just allow Philip to, to be the person that he created Philip to be. And as we come to the story of Philip and the eunuch this week, we see him doing the same thing. It was God who gave the eunuch the initial desire to want to believe in the first place, and then uh, put him on a path where he could encounter someone who could teach him uh, the scriptures. God put all that in Philip, and so uh, his desire ultimately resulted in him having uh, this saving faith. And, and since we focused a lot on Philip last week, we're going to focus more on the eunuch this week, and we'll talk about uh, the eunuch's first, his desire uh, to come to saving faith, and then uh, the decision that he made about Jesus Christ, and then finally uh, his demonstration of faith that he exhibited by his baptism. Uh, so first, the eunuch had a desire to know God, and we see this in verses uh, 25 uh, through 36. You know, as we come to the second half of Acts chapter 8, 
Uh, God had given Philip a couple of new ministries now, right? The first thing he did was he allowed him to be a minister uh, to these Hellenistic widows. He was one of the seven. And then when violence broke out in Jerusalem, he let uh, the eunuch uh, go off to, I'm sorry, uh, Philip go off to Samaria. And there he got to preach to the masses uh, in Samaria. And now uh, he is in Jerusalem and now he's going to head down to a, a desert road in Gaza and he's going to have a chance to do one-on-one evangelism uh, with the eunuch. And, and so what we see from Philip is that uh, first he's a humble servant, right? He's willing to accept whatever ministry uh, the Lord has for him. And he was uh, uh, obedient to the Holy Spirit and he was well-versed in his scriptures. And and if we have all of these things, uh, there's no telling what God can do with us. He can use us mightily uh, if we have these qualities uh, that Philip had. Now, we see here that Philip was in Jerusalem when he received this word from the angel of the Lord. So probably what happened was that uh, we saw last week that, that Peter and John returned from Samaria to Jerusalem. Probably Philip went with them, although it doesn't say that, uh, because here he is in Jerusalem now. Uh, when he had been in Samaria, and he receives this word from the Lord that says, go down uh, south on this desert road uh, to Gaza, and then he'd be told what to do from there. So uh, he receives this special instruction, and he, he, so he takes this road uh, down to Gaza from Jerusalem. And so uh, this is Jerusalem over here, and if you were going to go to Gaza, it's traveling southwest along this road, Uh, to Gaza, which is on the west coast there of Jerusalem, bordering the Mediterranean Sea. And that was a well-traveled road, so there would be people along that road, even though it was uh, a desert road. Uh, So there's Philip. He's along that road, and he's waiting for direction from the angel of the Lord or the Holy Spirit. Well, what about the eunuch? Uh, What do we know about the eunuch? The first thing we're told is that the eunuch is from Ethiopia. That's not present-day Ethiopia. Uh, it, it was part of what was called the Nubian Kingdom at the time. Uh, it's south of Egypt, which is in modern-day Sudan. So uh, here's a map of present-day Africa. This is where uh, Ethiopia was then. This is present-day Ethiopia, but this is where it was back then. It's also known in the Bible in the Old Testament as Cush. If you remember uh, Cush, that's, that's uh, what Ethiopia is. And so... When you're there, uh, looking uh, at about 500 miles in front of you of desert road to get to Jerusalem and back, that's quite a trek uh, to get to Jerusalem and back uh, through the desert. And and, uh, it would take you five months to get there and then five months to get back. So you really have to want to go to Jerusalem. And that shows this eunuch's desire uh, to want to hear uh, from the Lord. And, And so He's been to Jerusalem, and now he's coming home from worshiping the Lord in Jerusalem, and he's on his way back to Ethiopia. Uh, Ethiopia, geographically speaking, from the standpoint of Israel, uh, was literally considered to be the ends of the earth. That's about as far as they knew of anybody being from, uh, was Ethiopia. And so uh, what we see is Acts chapter 1, verse 8 being fulfilled. As we continue our journey through Acts, right, uh, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And this Ethiopian is, from Israel's perspective, the ends of the earth, and we see that being fulfilled. Uh, Since this was his home, scholars are universally agreed that that, uh, the eunuch was a black man. And so that shows us that the Bible 
uh, never discriminates over who gets to hear the gospel. We are all God's children and we can all be saved. There is no basis in the Bible for any kind of prejudice, racial or otherwise. The gospel is for everyone. And so this man is described as a eunuch and a court official of Candace. Now, the word eunuch in the Bible can mean uh, a court official or a highly uh, positioned person in government. So uh, the fact that he's a eunuch doesn't necessarily mean that he has been castrated, uh, but the fact that he is called a eunuch and a government official here probably means that he actually was castrated and that he held a high government position. Uh, when they were in charge of the harem, uh, sometimes the government officials would be castrated because the harem is a great temptation. So to remove the temptation, they remove, you know. Uh, and then you don't have the temptation anymore. And so uh, that's maybe what happened with the eunuch. So uh, he was in charge of the treasury of Candace. And that's indeed a high position to be put in charge of all the uh, government's money. Uh, Candace, by the way, is not a personal name. That wasn't the queen's name. That is the title of the queen of Ethiopia. Uh, but the fact that he is physically uh, mutilated prevents him from being a full Jewish proselyte because he couldn't be circumcised. And Deuteronomy 23.1 says that uh, no one who is emasculated or who has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. And so he couldn't be a full Jewish convert. Uh, I'm not sure who got the privilege of checking, uh, but if anybody checked, they would find out that he was not able to be circumcised and therefore couldn't become a full proselyte. So therefore, uh, the most this man could ever be under Judaism rules would be a God-fearer. And the closest he would get to the temple is the court of the Gentiles. He couldn't go inside uh, the temple. But his castration, of course, was no hindrance to him becoming a full-fledged Christian because Christianity is for everyone who hears the word and believes it. Well, as a high-ranking official, he was probably relatively wealthy. He's being carried along on, on a chariot or a wagon, some kind of wheeled cart. He's not walking. And he has a copy of the scroll of Isaiah, uh, which were not plentiful uh, in that day. Most people would not have access to them. They were not produced in mass. They were very expensive to own. Uh, so he's, he's showing some of his wealth just by having this scroll with him. And if you happen to have a full scroll of Isaiah, scholars say that it would be 145 feet long. So that's quite a scroll if he's got that, that he's carrying through uh, this desert road. Uh, so he's, he's on this desert road. He's reading the scroll out loud. And that may seem weird to us that he's sitting in a carriage reading out loud. But uh, ancient Hebrew is incredibly difficult to read. First of all, you read it right to left, which is totally backwards to us, right? And then uh, all the letters are smushed together. There is no breaks in the words. There's no punctuation. Uh, so you would read it slowly and out loud just to try and sound out the words uh, in your head so you could understand what it was that you were reading. And so it's not at all strange that he would be reading out loud. That's how they read in those days. And so it's an angel of the Lord who told him to go down on this desert road. Uh, to Gaza. But now it's the Holy Spirit who picks up uh, with Philip now. And the Holy Spirit says, go and catch that chariot. And Philip, of course, attentive and obedient and attuned to the Holy Spirit, runs after that chariot and finds himself uh, next to the chariot, hearing the eunuch reading from this scroll. And he doesn't need prompting from the Holy Spirit for what to say when he gets here. He says, hey, 
do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, well, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? And, and that's interesting that this man is he's in his chariot reading from Isaiah, and he desperately wants to understand what it is that he's reading. And so he invites Philip to join him in that chariot. And I think it's good to ask for help in understanding the scriptures. You know, we come here every Sunday to hear the scriptures and have them expounded, but you study on your own, and I'm sure you have tools that you use to help you understand the scriptures as well. Uh, after I've prayed through a passage, I consult weekly like at least 10 commentaries to help me understand uh, what I'm going to be preaching on this week. You know, all this brilliance that you hear up here every Sunday, I don't just have this, right? I have to study this. I have to understand this. Uh, and so I get it from commentaries and prayer and, and trying to understand uh, what the scriptures say uh, before I come up here and preach that. And most pastors I know uh, do the same. So uh, the only way to learn is to be taught. And so uh, we shouldn't be afraid to be taught. We should humble ourselves and, and ask when we don't understand and, and use resources that have, are available to us so that we can know God better. So here's Philip. He's in the chariot, and he heard, here's this uh, eunuch reading from a passage, which is from Isaiah chapter 53, which is one of the classic passages in all the Bible about the Messiah. And these are the verses uh, that, he, his, uh, that he hears the eunuch reading. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. So the eunuch's reading this, and he asks a very logical question. Uh, who is the prophet prophesying about? Is it about himself or is it about someone else? Well, if you talk to people of the Jewish faith today who are learned in their scriptures, most of them will say that this passage is about Israel itself as a nation. And that's because Israel has undergone many prosecutions, many wars. They've been exiled several times. They've been subject to persecution for uh, thousands of years. And so uh, they think it means Israel as a, a national whole. Uh, others may say that it applies to Isaiah himself. Uh, after all, Isaiah, you will recall, according to tradition, was sawn in half under King Manasseh. And so that's about as persecuted as you can get. Uh, so they might say that, that, it, uh, that it applies to Isaiah. But uh, very few, if any, would say that it applies to Jesus because the uh, concept of a Jewish Messiah does not uh, encompass suffering and death. Uh, they can't understand that from a Jewish Messiah. They think that the Jewish Messiah must be a triumphant king, triumphant over his enemies. And of course, our Messiah will be triumphant over all his enemies, uh, just not yet. Uh, first, we are going through the church age, and thank God for that, so that we uh, might have the opportunity to be saved. So uh, that's the problem with uh, Jewish people understanding Isaiah 53 as a passage about the Messiah. They don't get the concept of the suffering servant. But let's look a little bit at what this passage says. Uh, if you look at verse 32 in your passage, that's uh, Isaiah 53, 7. This passage is describing an individual, right? An individual who was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And that individual offered no defense. He offered no resistance. It was almost as if he wanted to be uh, persecuted, as if he wanted to be slaughtered. Almost like he was in control of the entire situation, right? Almost as if he was working out 
just as he planned. And that's the sovereignty of God, working out all things according to his will. Uh, This man in Isaiah 53 was deprived of justice. He was removed from the earth and no one protested. Now, that sounds a lot like Jesus, but many people might argue that that could apply to lots of people over the course of history. After all, there have been thousands, yes, even millions of martyrs uh, for Jesus Christ. So uh, what makes that passage in particular apply to Jesus Christ? Well, verse 35 says that Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this text, preached Jesus to him. And so I bet that Philip went through the entire passage of Isaiah 53 and said, let's look at how this applies to Jesus. So I want to do that ourselves. Let's read a few more verses from this great chapter. I want to read Isaiah 53, uh, uh, verses 3 through 10. So here it is. Uh, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, uh, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. You see the crucifixion there. He was crushed for our iniquities. You see the atonement there. Uh, the punishment that was that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Again, the atonement. Uh, like sheep, or we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That speaks of the universality of our sin. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we see again the atonement there. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, which speaks of how he went to the cross without offering a defense. He went there uh, on purpose to die for our sins. Uh, He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and of course that's an unjust judgment, and he was killed. Yet who of his generation protested? None of them, right? All of his apostles fled uh, at his hour of need, and he was cut off from the land of the living, which means he was killed. And uh, for... Eight. So for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, he was punished. Uh, and then verse nine, he was assigned a grave with the wicked. So we have his burial and with the rich in death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth that speaks of the sinless Messiah, the man who never sinned. And yet it was the Lord's will to cause him uh, to suffer and to crush him. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And these verses speak to the resurrection and and the ascension and the second coming. And in this passage, we can find the entire gospel written 650 years before it it happened. It's one of the most amazing chapters in the whole Bible. We have here uh, an innocent man uh, who died a death that he didn't deserve for sins that he didn't commit, atoning for the sins that we did commit. Uh, And featured prominently in these verses, we see it over and over again, is substitutionary, penal atonement. He paying the penalty for our sins. We have his resurrection, his ascension, his second coming, uh, all in these passages. And and no one in history has ever 
fulfilled these verses. So if Philip went through these verses and explained these verses to the eunuch, that's a really good place to go to, to explain from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. But of particular interest to the eunuch, just a couple chapters later in Isaiah 56, here's what it says in verses 3 to 5. I think this was really cool. I bet this was really good news to the eunuch. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant to them, I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that than sons of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, which will not be cut off. And uh, it's just amazing that there is a passage like that in Isaiah about eunuchs, who this man is. And so uh, he's only got to scroll down maybe another few uh, inches in his scroll there, and he can read this incredible verse about himself. And so I'm sure that Philip used these and many other verses to point uh, the eunuch to Jesus from these Hebrew scriptures. And it just shows us how important it is that we be familiar enough with our Bibles that we can do the same. Can we show people from the Bible uh, that Jesus is Lord? Uh, can we show people how salvation is found in the Bible uh, through Jesus Christ? So uh, let me ask you, are you able to do it? Uh, Steve and, and uh, Nathan were giving us a great presentation this morning on evangelism, and we're going to hear more of it next week. I'm going to show you something that I learned in seminary, just a quick tried and true way to show people how they can be saved. It's a necessary skill that all Christians should have, uh, and it's called the bad news, good news. And so you just take your Bible, you hand it to somebody, and you say, I'd like you to read Romans 3.23 for me, and this is the bad news I want you to read for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are good. We like to say, oh, he's a good person, she's a good person. No, none of us are good people according to God's standards. And then you can take them next to 623, Romans 623, and show them that the wages of sin is death. So you're not good enough, and because you're not good enough, death awaits you. That's the bad news. But there is good news, and the next thing you do is you take them to Romans 5.8, and you say, have them read, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And there you have the substitutionary atonement, the, the, the Christ dying for the sins that we committed. And, and why? Well, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's because of grace that you have been saved and not of works. It's the gift of God, it's not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so if you're able to do that with somebody, you will have been able to present the entire gospel message to them. You'll have to flesh it out, of course, a little bit more as you go. But if you're able to do that, you've given them the whole plan of salvation and you'll have presented the whole gospel message to them. And if you're able to do that, if you're able to get that far, don't forget to ask for a decision. Ask them, are you willing and ready to place your faith in Christ now? On Sunday night, October 8th, 1871, D.L. Moody was preaching a sermon in Chicago to the largest congregation that he had ever preached before in his life. And he was preaching on Matthew 27, 22, which is where Pilate says, what shall I do then with this person, this man called Jesus Christ? And as Moody's coming to the end of his sermon, he says, I want you folks, all of you, uh, this week to turn over this question in your mind. Think in your mind this week, what should I do with Jesus Christ? And we'll come back next Sunday and we'll answer that question. 
And then uh, the famous hymn writer and singer, uh, Ira Sankey, gets up, and he begins to sing a song, uh, and the congregation joins in in a hymn that was never completed because the fire engines, the sound of the fire engines, came rushing through the streets of Chicago and drowned out the song before it could ever be finished. And before morning came, the Chicago fire had claimed near the, nearly the entire city of Chicago. And uh, Moody never got to come back the following Sunday and answer the question, what then shall we do uh, with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Uh, and Moody felt tremendous guilt for his entire life for those people who were in his congregation who he never got to see again. And he felt like he was going to be held personally responsible uh, for those of, among them who were lost, who he never demanded a decision from. And so we don't ever want to be in that position. When we present the gospel, let's ask for a decision and let the Holy Spirit do the work from there. I think Philip asked the eunuch for a decision because it's clear that the eunuch made a decision for Christ, as we see in verse uh, 36. Apparently, Philip told the eunuch that he needs uh, to be baptized as a demonstration of his faith because the eunuch ordered the chariot to stop so that he could be baptized. And, you know, one of the most tragic things in life is that people can hear the gospel over and over and over again, and they never believe it. And I was one of those people for a very long time. But by God's grace, he opened my eyes and my heart to be able to finally hear and understand. And, and the eunuch, he made this decision, and we're, we're grateful that he did. But sometimes people don't uh, because, one, they're not interested, or two, they know it's going to require a change in their lifestyle, and they just don't want to change their lifestyle. Other people just want to put it off. They say, I'll make a decision for Christ someday, just not today. Well, the Bible is clear that today is the day that we must decide. We are not guaranteed tomorrow at all. If we die before making a decision uh, for Christ, it's too late then. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is given to man once to die and then the judgment. Hebrews also says that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we never want to be in that position and we never want to leave someone else in that position. We tell them the gospel. We ask them for a decision. I just want to say here that if there is anybody here, and I don't think there is, but if there happens to be anybody here who has not accepted the gospel, uh, has not believed that Jesus Christ is their Savior, who has not believed that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead that, so that someday we will see him face to face and know that we have forgiveness of our sins, let today, <clears throat> excuse me, let today be the day for you. Don't leave here without believing this gospel. Well, the eunuch believed, and so he ordered the chariot to stop so that he could be baptized. <clears throat> now, I want to say a note about verse 37, which some of you may not have in your Bibles. Uh, some of you may. Uh, I asked Tom to read from the NIV because the NIV skips verse 37 in your Bible, but here's what it says. Uh, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. You may be baptized, that means. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, a lot of your Bibles, if you have the NIV, that verse doesn't appear at all. Other versions like the NASB have that verse in brackets, and that's because scholars don't think that this verse 
is original to the text. Uh, and that's why it's in brackets or it doesn't appear. Uh, scholars think that it was added by a zealous scribe in the second century who wanted to be sure that we actually had a written explicit confession of faith uh, in the Bible and uh, wanted to include that in it. So we added this verse. Now, I hope that that's not frightening to you, uh, but as many of you know, there are a lot of liberal scholars in the world who want to tell you, you cannot believe the Bible. We have no idea what it said 2,000 years ago, and so we have no way that we can trust what the original said, and so there's no reason why we should trust it today. Well, actually, just the opposite is true. Through this incredible science we have called textual criticism, we are able to take the literally thousands upon thousands of Greek New Testament manuscripts that we have and compare them to each other and understand what the originals said, which is why scholars know that this verse here, verse 37, is an addition, that it's not original to the text. So we ought to have great confidence and trust in our Bibles rather than fear our Bibles because we know with very few exceptions and even those few exceptions that we have have no material meaning uh, on anything theological or salvation driven in the Bible. We know what the original said. So I don't want you to fear your Bibles. Uh, we can have great confidence in them. You could delete this verse, and it is in the NIV, and you can see that it's obvious that Philip knew that the eunuch made some kind of confession of faith because that's why he was ready and willing to baptize this eunuch. The eunuch said, stop the chariot. Why should I not get out and be baptized uh, right now? And so uh, what's interesting, though, I think that we can learn from this verse 37 is that what we probably have is an early uh, confession that the church would ask people to make before, we were, were, before they were going to receive baptism. So it's really interesting that even in a scribal edition, we learn something about the early church. Probably the early church said, do you believe with all your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And then the person about to be baptized would say, yes, I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then they would let them be baptized. So uh, it's, it's uh, clear that, that the eunuch had made this response. The, the scribe did not need to explicitly talk about the actual confession. But what we see here is that baptism is not a condition of faith. It's a response to faith, right? We are baptized in response to our faith. And so we see that the eunuch made this demonstration of faith. And so we're told that they both go down into the water, uh, and then Philip baptized the eunuch. What do we see here? Uh, we can see here that any believer can baptize another believer. In fact, in the Bible, we're rarely told who does the baptizing, right? What's not important is who is doing the baptizing. It's that people are being baptized in obedience uh, to Jesus Christ. The amount of water is not specified. They go down into the water, but we don't know how much water there is. The mode of baptism is not specified. Uh, it may have been that, that Philip dunked him under the water. It may have been that Philip poured water on his head. We're simply not told. And so uh, there are some people who think that you absolutely must be immersed to be baptized properly. And there are other people who say, look, the Bible doesn't specifically say how you are to be baptized. Uh, immersion is not necessarily mandated. So I really don't want us to get hung up on the mode of baptism. I want us to get hung up on obedience to Jesus Christ, that we be 
baptized. I happen to personally think that baptism ought to be by immersion, but it doesn't always happen that way in the Bible, and sometimes there's not enough water available for immersion. So I don't think that it has to be that way, although if possible, I think it ought to be. The most important thing is that we want to obey Jesus, who said, go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so the obedience to Jesus is the thing that we want to be attuned to, because baptism is a commandment of Christians. It's a public confession and demonstration of your faith in Jesus Christ. You aren't saved by baptism, but you're making a confession that you are part of his church and that you believe in him. So if you haven't been baptized, you're not condemned, but I would say that you're not living obediently to Jesus Christ. And so you ought to consider being baptized. I've told you before that everyone in my family was baptized as infants, but then we decided to be baptized again uh, as adult believers. And, and I think that's something that you ought to consider. I'm not saying that you have to do it, but it's something that you might want to consider if you have not been baptized uh, as an adult believer. Uh, you're certainly not being disobedient if you haven't been baptized as an adult believer. Uh, I'd be moving way into the realm of legalism to say such a thing, but you certainly are commanded to be baptized. Well, as soon as they came up out of the water, Philip was snatched away. Uh, the Greek word is harpazo, uh, and it means to be caught up, to be taken away. It's the Latin translation of the word harpazo is the word rapio, which we get our English word rapture from. So this is the same word uh, that is used in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, where Christ comes for his church and we're raptured up to be with him. It's also the same word used in 2 Corinthians, where Paul is caught up to the third heaven. And so this happens to Philip. He's miraculously caught up and he founds himself at a place called Azotus, which is also in the Old Testament known as Ashdod. So here's Azotus, about 70 miles north of Gaza, and we're told that Philip continues making his way up the coast all the way from town to town. It's cut off here, but that's Caesarea up there. And that's where Philip lands, and we're going to find him there uh, 20 years later, not 20 years from today, 20 years in biblical time uh, later as we preach through this Gospel of Acts. He'll be there in Acts chapter 21 as Paul and his band of missionaries uh, are returning from their third missionary journey. They'll encounter Philip there uh, in Acts chapter 21. And meanwhile, the eunuch went on his way rejoicing, as all Christians should when they realize that they are saved and that the wrath of God no longer resides on them. Well, what an incredible passage. I want to think about things that we can learn about this passage from the eunuch, uh, from Philip, and from God. So first, the eunuch. The eunuch's desire to know God was not passive. It was as active as it could possibly be. He traveled five months to Jerusalem. He was in Jerusalem, uh, worshiping at the temple, and then he was reading the scriptures, and then he's traveling back to uh, Ethiopia. He invites Philip into his chariot. He asks for explanation of the gospel. He believed it, and then he was baptized. A devoted follower of Christ is not passive. Uh, devoted followers seek after Christ with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, as we just sang. It was a perfect song for what I wanted to say today, because that's how devoted followers of Christ seek after him. So let's let the eunuch be a model for how we all seek after Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Secondly, what can we learn about Philip? He was ready, 
and he was available to God, whatever the assignment was, and we need to be that ready as well. God gives us opportunities every day. He puts people in our paths. If we are listening to the Holy Spirit and thinking about how we can serve him, uh, there will be opportunities for us to preach the gospel uh, every day. Secondly, he was well-versed in scripture. There is so much in the Old Testament that points to Jesus. And we need to know uh, our Old Testaments as much as we can, but we certainly have to know those parts of the Old Testament that point people to Jesus. And we saw last week some passages from the Old Testament uh, that can teach us how to do that. Uh, so finally, about Philip, he was led by the Holy Spirit. He just put himself in position where he was going to open his ears, open his heart to whatever the Holy Spirit had for him, following whatever ministry he had for, for Philip, uh, not following his own desires, surrendering his life uh, to the Holy Spirit and allowing the Holy Spirit to govern his life. And, and if you come to Romans 12 and you read, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, that's what that passage means. We offer ourselves to the Holy Spirit and say, use me not as I will, as you will. And that's what it means. And so that's what Philip was doing. When we put this, the desires of the Spirit before our own desires, we will most certainly be doing God's will. Now about God. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And of course, that makes sense since he created us. Uh, read Psalm 139. It'll take you five minutes. Just understand the depth of the knowledge, uh, the intimacy of the knowledge that God has of you. And incredibly, he loves us anyway, even though he knows us that deeply. It should give us great comfort to know that the creator of the universe also created us and knows us so well and yet loves us anyway. And secondly, God knows how to get his truth to those who are earnestly seeking him. It was God who put this desire into the eunuch's heart to begin with. We don't know anything about how the eunuch came to know of Judaism or know about the temple. God gave that to him. And so here's the eunuch living in Ethiopia, 500 miles from Jerusalem. And he says, I'm going to get in my chariot, go up there and, and see what's going on up there, right? That's because God put that in his heart. So God knows how to get the truth uh, to people. I'm sure you've heard people say, what about uh, the man who's never heard, the person who lives on the remote desert island, the person who uh, lives uh, in a jungle who's never heard the good news of Jesus? Will that person be condemned? Well, this passage shows that God is sovereign. God can certainly uh, get his message to the people he wants to have it. He knows who are his. And so he can make sure that those he has chosen uh, will hear his message and respond. And, and even though this eunuch was from the ends of the earth, that was not too far for God to be able to reach this man. He was not beyond God's reach, and no one is. And we're going to see that again next week when we talk about the conversion of Paul. Uh, God can truly do the miraculous. So let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for this amazing passage. We thank you for what you've done in, in Philip's life, Lord, and how we look forward to meeting him in heaven uh, and, and hearing his story. What an incredible story that Philip had. And, and Lord, I can't imagine uh, that how the eunuch must have gone back to Ethiopia and what he must have done with the gospel that he heard. And, and Lord, how we, we, will, we will know when we get to the, to the other side uh, how these wonderful faithful disciples carried your seed and how the message grew as a result of what they did, Lord. 
Lord, we pray that you would give us some of the desire that Philip had to be an evangelist and some of the desire that the eunuch had to know you so much better, Lord, and that you would instill that deeply into us and that we would come to know you better, Lord, and then that we would take what we know and share it with others and that we would spread the good news, Lord, so that the world might hear your good news. Even in our area here, Lord, would you help us to minister to this neighborhood who desperately needs to hear your gospel, Lord. And let us allow the Holy Spirit to do that work. We just pray these things in Jesus' matchless name, Lord. Amen.